0: And welcome back to Behind the Lens. We are back after a short Thanksgiving break last week. Uh, I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line, with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, directors, writers, actors, actresses, cinematographers, production designers, costume designers, uh, composers, sound mixers, editors, film editors, you name it, we talk to them. And uh, we're hot in awards season right now, people. Uh, You know, if you're listening right now on AdrenalineRadio.com, don't forget, you can also go to Facebook, to the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page, and you can watch a live stream of of our show. Um, There's nothing thrilling, except I'm sitting here in the studio by myself, looking awful. Uh, But... I change out my tablescape every week. And this week, there is a plethora of fun, fun, fun movie screeners here, award screeners, and I want to thank Netflix. I want to thank all, you know, primarily, because a lot of this comes from Netflix. Uh, But Amazon, Bleecker Street, Neon, all of these wonderful, wonderful distributors uh, provide the critics... uh, They very courteously, as they do every year, provide us with screeners to make it easier for us to view films for awards consideration and not just for those in the Academy for Oscars, uh, but for the critics associations as well. Uh, I know that as a member of the Hollywood Critics Association, um, we just announced our nominations the other day and uh, as part of today's show. You're going to hear my exclusive interview with writer-director Fran Kranz, uh, who just picked up four HCA nominations for his film, his directorial debut, Mass. Uh, Jason Isaacs, who stars in the film in this in this uh, four-member ensemble, uh, picked up a Best Supporting Actor nomination from HCA. Fran picked up. Best Original Screenplay nomination, and the film also picked up Best Indie Film and Best First Feature for Fran Kranz. So you're going to hear my interview with Fran uh, in a little bit, but so many films. uh, Let me tell you, just coming up with my nominations, it was nail-biting. It was killing me. Uh, especially when it came to a lot of the, technic- of the craftspeople, the artisans, the cinematographers, the costumers, uh, hair and makeup this year, all exceptional, especially cinematography. This is one, every year I say this, but I'll tell you, the bar keeps getting raised higher and higher with filmmaking, with cinematography. Uh, and this year, there are some hot, hot, hot contenders, Um I think that Greg Fraser, who did Dune, I think Greg is definitely one of the big frontrunners. Uh, but we will find out. We'll be talking more in the next few weeks uh, before our Christmas break, and then in through January and February, leading up to the Oscars, uh, and uh, for as the the list gets whittled down as to who the frontrunners become. But there are so many great films, and there are so many films that are out there streaming and in theaters. uh, And I can't, I have to say it being Ricardo's, please, please, please see it. See it in the theater and appreciate the true mastery of that film, of Aaron Sorkin, in bringing this contained, this one week look at Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz uh, to life. It is outstanding in every element of the production. The period-perfect costuming, the production design, again, the cinematography and the performances. Tony Hale as a young Jess Oppenheimer uh, just knocks it out of the park. Jess Oppenheimer was a producer of I Love Lucy. Um, Just And Javier Bardem, he sings. You'd swear it's Desi Arnaz himself singing, but it's not. Um, Being the Ricardos, do yourself a favor and see it. And then on the 10th, uh, uh, on the 10th, I had my doubts, folks. You knew this last year when the announcement came out about Steven Spielberg doing a reimagination reboot of West Side Story. Blew my mind. It is spectacular. Janice Kaminsky is a god as a cinematographer, and what he does with light and lens in West Side Story is phenomenal, phenomenal. What I actually see him doing is implementing a lot of the crane, the swooping crane shots that Gene Kelly used as a director in Hello, Dolly, uh, traveling and swooping. And Janus uses this to take us from up high and then zoom down low to be eye level with, uh, the dancers with the actors, and then also does that in reverse. So, so many wonderful, wonderful nuances and elements are bringing these films to life. Uh, and I can't encourage you enough. See as many as you can, not as many as I see. But my, my honest to God, my count for screenings this year uh, is going to wrap at 18, about 1,800 films. And I watch every frame beginning to end. And a big part of that. A large part of that this year. Is courtesy of Santa Fe Film Festival. I am one of the judges. And uh, just finished screening. Submissions. And Santa Fe. uh, Is slowly announcing. We're slowly announcing. The films that. uh, Will be seen in the Santa Fe Film Festival. Comes February 2nd. So stay tuned for more on that. But. Let's let's move things along here with today's show. Midpoint of the show, Josh Tessier is back with us to talk about Overrun. Uh, that is now available. Just came out on, D- on DVD and Blu-ray. Uh, anybody that likes noirish films, crime thrillers, action movies. Pick up a DVD and Blu-ray. It's a great it's a great holiday gift for them. But Josh is back. We're going to talk about that. As I said, you're going to hear my interview with Fran Cran shortly. But first, three of the most delightful young talents I have had the pleasure of speaking to and seeing on screen in many a day. Gemma Brooke Allen, Audrey Hesch, uh, Olga Petza. They star along with Julie Bowen and Nick Thune in Netflix's new hit, directed by by Valerie Weiss, mixtape. This film is so much fun. It's set on the eve of Y2K. Gemma's character, Beverly Moody, 12 years old, she finds a broken mixtape that her parents, who were teens when they had her, um, made, and they were killed in a car accident. So she finds this, and she wants to learn more about her parents. And because the tape is broken... Uh, Those of us old enough to remember when your tape is broken, either you get some scotch tape or sometimes you just have to like make a whole new mixtape. But when songs she can't even find these songs and slowly she a friendship builds um, with her two new friends, Ellen and Nikki, as they go on a quest to duplicate her parents mixtape and learn all about the music of the 90s. And by extension, because this is set on the eve of Y2K, we are transported back to the 90s with fashion, with hair, uh, and with a killer soundtrack, which I think is available on Spotify. It, it's fabulous. So I, ta- I had a chance to speak with these three delightful girls. So take a listen to my exclusive conversation with Gemma Brooke-Allen, Audrey Hesch, I think that's how we say her name. And Olga Petsa talking mixtape. I have to tell the three of you, I am utterly enchanted by mixtape. I love this film. The three of you are a breath of fresh air in film. Uh, Thank you so much. You're so sweet. Thank you. I haven't enjoyed performances with as much joy I think it, all year. So, That's a, wow, that nice. means so much. Wow. Thank you,
1: but, thank you, thank you so much. You guys, I'm very glad that you enjoyed our film. Yeah,
2: it was so a
0: lot. Nice to hear. I just adore the three of you. Your chemistry is incredible. So, and I, I'm curious. We're still it. We actually hate each other.
3: No, I'm kidding. Yeah, no, it's all <laughs> acne. That's all we were having to do. Oh, well. Yeah, I mean, really. serve an Oscar for putting up with each other, really. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we have, have to be separated on set. There, there were too many arguments happening. There too many
0: fights breaking out. <laughs> well, I have to say, Gemma, I'm familiar with your work. I saw you first in Black, Black Pumpkin. You had some one-offs in Doctor Ken's Seal Team a few years ago, and Audrey, I just loved yes. you in in here today with Billy Crystal and, and oh, my oh my God! Oh my God! So
1: awesome. thank you so much. Uh, that was that was a really a uh, fun film to
0: film, and it was
1: great. Everybody was
0: awesome. <laughs> so I was already familiar with the work from the two of you. And now, Olga, you know I've now seen your work, and I got news for you. I got the three of you on my radar for years to come. Because oh, thank you, you guys you. are fantastic. So I've got to ask each of you, what yeah. was it about this script? Because here it is. It's Y two K. You guys weren't even born yet, um, and there's all <laughs> this insanity happening, but. You know, the whole idea of the mixtape, because, yeah, mixtapes were a really, really, really big thing for many years. I mean, I go back to in the 70s, the only way we could make mixtapes is we were recording songs off the radio with a tape recorder. I kid you not and then you put and then you just you know you record one and then when you hear another one you like okay then you get your little recorder out and you record the next one kind of similar to the way the mixtape was done in mixtape so I'm really curious with all of these new things the costumes the hair the makeup which by the way Olga go be a hairdresser you did their hair beautifully I know. I'm, seriously, I'm getting a
3: haircut from one of the um, stylists this coming Saturday. So it's done deal. Done deal. I I love, I love everyone who's so talented on and off camera. So it's, um, I totally
0: agree with your statement there. (laughs) So, you know, with all of this new stuff that you guys didn't even live through, you read this script. What jumped out at each of you that made you go, ooh, 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 me, I want to make this film? Let's start with Gemma. Okay, well,
1: actually, I had auditioned for this way back when, even before COVID. So I had known the script, and I remember really loving it, but I was really young at the time. And so I had already been, like, ecstatic because my mom was like, Gemma, do you remember made that amazing movie? And I was like, oh, my God, yes!" Yeah. And she was like yeah, like you've just got another audition for that. And I was like, so excited. And um, something about Beverly and just um, the connection between all the characters was written so well. And I am the 90s babe myself and I love music. So the fact that it was so driven by music, I loved that. And the whole punk rock world, I loved that. And that made me really drawn to it too, cause I'm more of like an r and girl, but this movie introduced me into a whole nother world of amazing music that I had never heard before. Mm-hmm. And what about for you, Audrey? Um, oh, definitely a lot of the points that Gemma brought up. Uh, I really liked, too, like the music aspect, the kind of punk-rocky world, the 90s thing, because, you know, I'd never been in a 90s themed movie before. But um, I also just really liked, like, when I read the script, I really liked how, um, I don't know, how, how everything was really grounded and just genuine. Like, all the connections, and like Gemma said, the characters were really well-written. Just everything was just so great. I just, I, I just like the vibe of it.
0: And what, and what about you,
3: Olga? I mean, I got to agree with what the girls have said so far. And also, again, with the, you know, it might be, people might question how to, girls who have not been born even close to the 90s do a film that, you know, is about that time. And, but when I first read the script, it, I felt as though, you know, I could relate to it because the whole story wasn't just about being born in the 90s. It was about, you know, it's about friendship and music and love and relationships and, and that self-discovery, um, which I think anybody of any age could relate to. So once I, I realized how much that even a, a movie that, you know, was is based 20 years before I was born and 10, but, um, it, you know, it was created, I could still relate to it and, and, and just have a blast doing it, which I did with very great people. <laughs>
0: well, and you bring up a really good point, Olga, because this movie at its heart, it's all about friendship and fun and that friendship. It starts through music. It starts through that mixtape. And so much of the world is people connect through music. So this film is just an extension of that idea. And to watch how each one of you get introduced to the other through music, looking for lyrics, looking for a song, uh, looking for a record that nobody has, not even anti. And I have to say, all of you with Nick... In that role are hilarious, and oh, we love Nick. <laughs> but yeah, you are just so spot on, Olga, about the fun and the friendship and the music. But yeah, you know, let's bounce to work to Nick in a moment, and that club scene because that's a really intense Absolutely. scene. And yes, I can tell you that was a very authentic kind of club for. The 90s. <laughs> no, accurate. It, felt, it felt accurate. I, yes, I can assure you that was a very accurate representation of some clubs. You know, what was that experience like for the three of you to be in a scene like that? Because this, I think, it's got more madness and mayhem happening in it than anything you guys have ever worked on before. Audrey, there's always madness and mayhem on a Billy Crystal film, but not this kind oh, of, yeah. of, of madness and mayhem. Okay. Cool. So this time, let's start with Audrey and tell me what your experience was like doing that club scene and that parental, that parental essence that Nick brought. Mm. oh my gosh it was
1: like well like you said it was absolute madness and chaos there's a bunch of people also can i just say all the um people you know uh, that were were there uh you know being in the background and everything all their clothes were so cool they should have been in the forefront they should have been made characters too because they just brought so much of the atmosphere with them it was just amazing they were also really nice um and it was just really awesome, but also, you know, out, uh, between takes, it was also kind of chaotic because, you know, our parents and like the dress people—they'll come over. They're like, "Okay, you gotta keep warm. You gotta keep warm," and it, it was just really fun, though, kind of like how the scene portrayed it.
0: And what's your it's take? Really film. What's your take on it, Olga? How was that experience for you? Um, again, chaos,
3: but in a way that made me feel very, very calm and excited to be there. The thing is, because obviously the three of us have never, um, you know, been to a club, just like the three characters (laughs) in the film. So it was for sure something very authentic, seeing that, uh, you know, the expression on our faces once we walk in and we see everyone dancing and being part of that just entire vibe of everyone. Um and with nick there i mean he was really great there's a particular moment where i go crowd surfing and um yes (laughs) you do (laughs) and he comes and he brings me back and then we kind of fight him into going crowd surfing himself and he doesn't agree which was really fun that was all improv which was lovely um (laughs) and so i it was just really 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 thrilling and exciting and just being in that room with so many cool people and, and you know cast and crew just all really great
0: and what about for you Gemma how was that, that scene because that's a really it, chaos is the word for that scene but it's also with Valerie directing it's a controlled chaos so oh yes of course
1: <laughs> Valerie her her saying that she would always tell us which I love, is pressure makes diamonds and I have to agree with the girls. It was totally chaotic, but, like, in the best way possible. And it was pretty late, a pretty late shoot because it was at night. Not too late, but it was pretty late, and we hadn't eaten dinner, and I was just running, I don't know about the girls, but, like, pretty much full, fully on adrenaline that night. <laughs> just pure adrenaline. Yeah, sure. yeah. It was so really fun and,
2: like,
1: I feel like it was totally, like, a dream. Like, I remember after each take, we would be, like, keep dancing and then when Val would yell cut, we would be sad because we would just want to keep dancing the whole time. (laughs) And it was so fun being with them, too, because, like, the connection that we make together there, like, I'll never have that with anyone else, you know? It's really special. And I remember this, um, between takes, we were taking a rest. We were all, like, laying on each other's heads and Audrey, she told me, like, wow, you have a really comfortable head. And I was like,
2: <laughs> Which
1: is so cute. It's so Audrey. It's so Ellen. i heard me say that. She's just, I love the girls. And so that was really funny. Um, and it was amazing. Very chaotic, but like in the best way possible, of course.
0: So now I've got to ask you about because you all go from wearing, okay, with the exception of you, Olga, because you're already a trendsetter. You're already a rock and roll trendsetter with the costuming that you've got. But Gemma and Audrey, you know, you guys are so straight-laced, Gemma. Your grandma keeps putting you in those sweaters, just different colors, but just one sweater after another. And Audrey, you know, you got, your mom's got you in proper clothes. How fun was the wardrobe, the 90s wardrobe that you guys got to wear? And did you get to pick out any of that wardrobe pieces that you liked that you wanted to wear? Let's start with Olga.
3: You know, the costume designer was Mona May, which, I mean, from the first time seeing that name and knowing that um, we would get to work with her every (laughs) single day was (laughs) mind-blowing. And just, it it really was a a really, really great environment when we were trying on and, and finding what works and what doesn't. I felt everyone had some input into it. So I, for sure, our opinions were... Um, taken into consideration, and we found what we felt most comfortable in, but also what brought the character to life the most. Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
3: which was, it's, I mean, it's really important to do. So it, 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 you know, everyone nailed it when it comes to that. And also the clothes were really, really cool for everyone. Um, I, did I keep anything? I know that at the end I was, um, Given this one sweater, Mona gave me this one sweater that I I didn't wear in the film and didn't make the cut, but it really was beautiful, and it was given to me as a wrap gift. And then um, another uh, hoodie from from one of the other assistant designers, but um, I don't think I kept anything from the clothes that we see on... On the act in the actual film,
2: mm-hmm. which
3: is a little disappointing, but still really, really—I mean, it for sure inspires me today to, you know, change my clothing for sure.
0: <laughs> and what about for you, so. Audrey?
3: What about for you, Audrey? Oh
1: well, I definitely had a really a pretty decent hand in swaying what I wore because um, when we were trying on clothes. I feel like maybe I talked a little bit too much about about like anime and stuff because I just go on and on and I guess they're like, you know what, let's just, let's let's incorporate that into Ellen's character. So they got a lot of uh, 90s themed uh, kind of anime shirts, like they had a Dragon Ball Z shirt, they had like, I think her name was like a space, Space Invader, there was like a bunch of different 90s themed anime shirts also in my room, but um, yeah, like Olga said before, Monome... A really awesome person to work with. She is so sweet, so nice. Her dog scared me <laughs> for the first time I met her. It came out of nowhere. I didn't. I was. I wasn't expecting a dog, <laughs> but um, yeah, it was really great.
0: Yeah. Did you keep any of your wardrobe? Did you get to keep any pieces? Yes, I did. I kept a
1: few pieces. I had. There were two pairs of pants that I, I was able to keep, and then there was there was one dress kinda of thing and also a vest. But and I think I kept it though because I kept every single time I try on something, I'd go to Mona and I'd be like, hey, I mean, maybe I can keep this after the film. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I gotta keep some really nice pieces.
0: Gemma has to answer about costumes. Um
1: I love the costumes so much. I definitely think just like what Audrey and Obeck said, we definitely had um, we were very lucky that we had, you know, some say in it, and of course they would never choose anything that we didn't like or didn't fit right or was uncomfortable. And um, I just had bugging bu- um, Mona May the entire film, like just saying, "No, I'd love to keep this, you know. Uh, oh my gosh, can I keep this? Like, um, can you hook me up at the end of the show?" <laughs> and um, I, I'm so happy. I actually got to keep um, the burgundy hat with the few feathers in it that I wore to the club, to the voyeur. One of my favorite hats. Definitely like my favorite hat that I own. 100%. And um, yeah, Mon May was so amazing. And the clothes inspire me today with what I wear. I mean, I'm a bit of a mix. Like, I am obsessed with old lady sweaters, to be honest. <laughs> you know, I have to, I hate to admit it, but that's just me. I'm an old lady inside, but Mixtape really brought out that punk rocker in me. So that was cool. And um, I also got to keep, like, an undershirt and some other stuff, too. But that's definitely the highlight, I would say.
0: And very quickly for each of you, just name your favorite song from the film. Start with Olga.
3: Um, I'm going to say more than this. I think yeah, because um, we have some really great experiences. Everyone singing it together and dancing to it—it it really and really great. <laughs>
0: okay, your turn, Audrey.
1: Uh, I would say teacher's pet because we practiced that a lot. <laughs> so, oh yeah, song too. Yeah.
3: And what about you, Gemma? Oh my
1: gosh, this is probably one of the hardest questions I've ever been asked. Um, really? I'm definitely love, like getting nowhere fast by girls at our best, but I'm gonna have to say the wrong song. Ooh it written so well. It is such a beautiful song. And um yeah, I think that is probably what my favorite.
0: Well I yeah. loved I loved all the tracks, but my favorite was Dancing in the moonlight. Mm, oh that's good. I love
3: I think, I think
0: everyone wants to agree that it is all the movies, all the songs in the movies. Yep. <laughs> Especially since we sing yeah. it... <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. ladies, this is... I know Chelsea has to move you along. This has been so much fun. I can't wait to see where each of you go, what each of you does next. And I hope that next time I talk to all of you individually or together, we're in person... Because uh, I can't wait to talk to all of you again. You got, you, you gals are fabulous. Oh, thank
1: you, thank
0: so, you much. so much.
3: Thank you so uh, much. Thanks for having us. And I'm so glad that we got to talk.
0: Thank you. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Thanks. And and, e- and, uh, I'll never forget our conversation about toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> Neither will I, Olga. Neither will I. Oh, God. Have a wonderful holiday season, you guys. And that was the wonderful trio of Gemma, Audrey, and Olga Mixtape It is on Netflix streaming on Netflix right now and it is so much fun Um, You will love it You will love it You will love the fun, the friendship, the journey of these three girls as they become friends and you know, go on this quest, this musical quest to fill, Gem- to fill in the- Gemma's character, to fill her in on what her parents were like since she never got to know them. Um, it is, it's got heart, it's got charm, it is priceless. And it's got a killer soundtrack. So, you know, I love it. I love it. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's fun. Um, we're going to play the Fran Kranz interview after, Pam. We're going to do that one after. But right now, he's back. He's back with us. Josh Tessier oh, is De- here.
4: Deb- Debbie. <laughs> with, with, I was so excited when, when Andy told me that you want to be back on the show. I was like, oh my God. Yes. I. I I owe you a drink. She was telling me that you have you. Uh, there's this place in Culver City that you love. The
0: backstage. Um, the backstage.
4: Yes, I owe you that. I, I enjoy you so much. Oh, yeah, you know. She's like a uh, Debbie. Is so she's old school. She's the whole bar's like. I love that. Please let her roast me. She's awesome. <laughs> so much fun.
0: Well, I'm so happy because I know you've been shooting. And I didn't, and at first, you know, we weren't sure if you'd even be available. But, I mean, the minute I, you know, got the blast about Overrun hitting Blu-ray and DVD in time for the holidays, perfect stocking stuffer. Um, It
4: is. Perfect stocking stuffer. We just had a blurb in New York Times, which was really nice. It was very sweet. They got it. They understood what uh, what we were doing with it. So that was fun.
0: But Um, it's... You know, it's. I was just. It's like, well, you have to find out. You have to find out. And then she's like, "Okay, he can do it." And I'm like, whew, "All right." Oh yeah,
4: oh yeah. How are you? I'm
0: fine. How are you?
4: I'm good. I've been busy. I've been busy. It's been a, It's been crazy. I, I just finished up this uh this, this other film that I was doing second unit on, and that was in too with uh with a friend of mine. So, um, it was fun. It was with uh John Cusack and um, uh Emil Hirsch.
0: I love John. I love John. Yeah,
4: you know, have you, have you? did you work with him? Did you ever work with him back in the
0: day? I never got to work with John, but I've interviewed him before. We've seen each other at so many junkets over the years. And um, there have been many instances where, you know, he's been sitting up there on as part of a press conference and I'm in the front row and we'll make eye contact and just roll our eyes at something that somebody said. And it's always really funny. Um,
4: yeah, he's, very funny, very smart guy. Oh, yes, so.
0: yes. Now, have you seen the film? His film that he did, um, War Inc. What was it? War, I War Inc. I think it was. Oh
4: yes, yes. War Inc. It's kind of like a spiritual sequel to uh, Gross Point Blank. Which kind about. of, yeah,
0: yeah. But he just he has such a great command. Um. Yes and sensibility about him he thinks outside the box and he yeah br- he's
4: great and he brings like, that to uh, his Debbie. performances yes he does I, I'll, t- I'll tell you this like watching him perform it really is he just so good and um you know i actually get to perform with him which was really great and he's uh, very giving and, and he's a cool guy he loves sports so like you know, I was trying to find something that that we had common ground. And he used to train with um, uh, a great martial artist named Benny the Jet, and he still does, I think. But like you know, Benny's he's class act, fighting you know um, J- Jackie Chan and Bill's All and all that fun stuff. So it's like me growing up, that was he was really loved loved him. So like talking to John about that it was really it was really nice. Like he's he's just a really smart guy, great performer. I, I can't speak but I can't speak more highly. Uh, about him. He's you know, wonderful.
0: I mean, I've always loved him ever since he, you know, Lloyd Dobler. That is, you know, the quintessential oh, yeah. character, but I, my personal favorite of John of John's performance is the Raven when he played Edgar Allan Poe. That is such you a know, dark, I agree. twisted film that is so psychologically taxing you can see it on him that the weight that Poe had in life, John really captured that on screen in the character yes. Um, yes. That, yes. Is, that is my favorite performance of his just because of the sheer depth emotional and psychological depth that he brought to the character just amazing
4: yeah, he's really good with nuance yeah very good
0: yeah. And look at that—you just got to work with him, and you got to work with a meal. Nice to know you're keeping yeah. busy, staying off the streets. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, trying to trying to keep my head straight. You know, not uh, too, too crazy. It was a it was a very hard shoot. They neither of those guys were there very long. It was um it was it was um it was a tough one out in Arkansas. Wow, going yeah. to Arkansas is yeah.
0: tough to begin with
4: yes I, you, I yes yes Debbie that's understated you know and what were it you was very warm
0: so what were you doing on this one on second I was unit second
4: unit I was I was like um I, well I didn't a lot of the action though we did a lot of stuff it was a small movie too wasn't mm-hmm. it? it wasn't a very big film um, but there was a lot of gags a lot of a lot of we, we blew up a house and stuff and because we were going to Arkansas and the directors a good friend of mine Brian and and um, He's like, hey, I want you to be in it, and I'm usually just behind the camera for him. Right. So I played one of the bad guys, and he's like, I want you to do it because you know, first off, we're a small movie, saves us money, and you can fight better than anybody. I'm going to get to fight, and then you can do all this stuff. So I was like, sure. I was like, why not? And um, end up doing that, and uh, <laughs> it was listen, it was fun. It was a good experience because I brought Bill down there with me, uh, and you know, he's like my dad. I love Bill. When the, uh, so when we do go out, I'll bring him if that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> you can talk to Bill. No, uh, he's uh, he's a great guy. So um, so I did that. We blew up a lot of stuff, and um, it was uh, it was a good time.
0: Yeah, but blowing um, up stuff, blowing up stuff is so much fun, and you do a lot of blowing up stuff and overrun too, which is what makes you this a perfect film for you as, as your first time feature uh, yes. directorial because you have such a great understanding having worked stunts having been a stunt coordinator uh, you understand how this all works and you know, I did and I didn't ask you before I'm curious I got to ask you now because she is in the film Monet Moyo, did you ever work with her dad, with John? Um,
4: I, so Omid, Omid had worked with John, um, several times, and they were friends, so like, he's, that, that was Omid's, uh, connection, like, Mm -hmm. Bonette, like, she, uh, she's a sweet gal. I've actually, surprisingly, never worked with John.
0: Wow. Wow.
4: As long as I've been doing it, I've never worked with John, but Omid has worked with John, you know, for years and years and years. Yeah. Um. um, and she and she was great. Like I uh, she was a lot of fun. Real, She was very sweet. And um, getting getting to work with her, you know, she's a legacy kid. And it was really nice to uh, um, have her on the set.
0: You know, and, and watching and, her yeah, watching her, it was very obvious the apple did not far fa- fall far from the tree.
4: Uh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree, I, I, I agree with you 100 percent.
0: <laughs> so now for everybody so for everybody that didn't hear our, our rantings and ravings and, and all of our laughter last time you were on the show, give a brief description of how you would describe, well, I'll give you mine first, how I would describe Overrun, and then you can tell me how right or wrong I am. But Overrun, Wait. it's hardcore mafioso battles with Russians, Italians, good cops, bad cops, and an informant caught in the middle and bring it all to life in
4: Overrun. Okay, you were correct there. What else would you add? I would, I mean, you know what? You pretty much summed it up, Debbie. I think that that's like the the gist. It's very like Smoke and aces, right? It's very ensemble you know, um, uh, get the case, get the girl, you know, play on those tropes kind of film. A lot of fun, you know, play into its weirdness kind of thing.
0: Well, now, because this is your first feature, and given your background, um... You know, having acted been a stunt man, stunt coordinator, um, and also one of the really fascinating things about your background is you 've also been a colorist on films. Yes, and this, for anybody that has seen overrun or who is yet to see it, the color this this really your directorial eye, the colorist in you comes through with how so much of this film works especially when we are in Ray's Bar slash Casino. You've got that interior and the way it is awash with reds and blues that filter out into negative space is stunning. It's saturated. It's rich. Dark woods are in there. But this comes down to it's the eye of a colorist that really brings that out. So and we didn't talk yeah. about your work before as a colorist. So I'm really curious how that plays into your directorial sensibilities when you're working it's huge. when you're working with somebody like Jeff who's your your DP in working with him coming up with your lighting and your angles and your production and your production designer Kevin Boylan. That has to play a big, big part. And I think that sets you – it gives you an edge as a director that many don't have.
4: I really appreciate that. Yeah, I guess we didn't talk about that. No. Um, the, the color side of me. And color is such a huge deal to me because you can evoke a lot. Of, like color science is very important, I think, you know, in marketing and really anything. But I feel you can get a mood and a character immediately off of, you know um, – a color. Yeah. You know, it's like you can bring that in and then you can hone an audience in by making them focus on, you know, a particular thing or this and that. And so yes, looking with Gev and obviously Gev is brilliant. He's a very good DP. So it's like, you know, it made it easier for me and him to figure out color palettes and stuff like that. But yes, it plays a huge role in the way that I look at things and the way it's like everybody always, you know, like the colorist joke is, you know, we hate white walls, mm-hmm. you know, like I like, bringing color in unless it's, it's meant to be sterile or meant to like bring sure. you into a place where you have a certain feeling, like a, a particular type of white, but that's the conversation that I have. I'm like, well, what are we putting him in? What's the environment looking at? How can I have him stick into the moment and give the audience the feel of this is what it is. Um, and this is, this is where I want the, the guy because of the color, because in that open shot with Robert, when he's going through the uh, thing, it's very warm mm-hmm. and kind of like, We have that mixed lighting, and it's very kind of exciting. And he he, he himself is jovial when he's walking, when we're behind him. You know, he's doing the Goodfellas, and he's like, that's front of house, right? That's like what he wants people to see. When he goes back to the house, we get a little bit more yellow, a little bit more green. It's like a little bit less more, less color because that's his real self. That's who mm-hmm. he actually is. And he takes his glasses off, and he goes through, and we start pulling him. And then we get into the freezer, and now we're cold because that's what he actually does. So, like, you're doing a color palette for all of that. And it was really important. That particular shot was pretty much... How I designed, how I was going to make the film was the color spectrum of the the characters' choices mm-hmm. that I was doing through color palette, and it helped Robert because it's like, "This is front of house, this is back of house," and he saw like the palette change. So therefore, it helped him be able. To, and Robert's a great actor. What yes, a wonderful man!
0: Very much so. But and then um, I, I also see that when you move into, you know, when Bruce Stern's character is on screen as the Russian mafia head. Nobody ever thought. No Russian
4: accent. No Russian accent. I no so Russian accent. Debbie, I get so much crap for that. Well, but, like, it's Bruce Stern. What are you going to do? I think he's great.
0: He doesn't need a Russian accent. He, he could have he he been doesn't. adopted. He could have been adopted as a child.
4: Uh. Yeah, he could have. <laughs> I think the biggest thing was having Nick, who played uh, his son, I should have had him been American and just said, hey, you're, you guys are Russian. <laughs> but, um, but, yes. I agree. We can go back on subject. You're so good at keeping me on subject. You're so good at that. Look at you.
0: I try. I try. But, you know, but, you know, Bruce Stern and the costuming, his costuming and the immaculate suits and the pocket square, you know, that's that's kind of ruffled Um so it's not, you know, one of those pre-cut things that's sewn into into the breast pocket of a suit jacket. Um, it's one you actually have to stuff in there yourself. Um, yep. All these cool. beautiful little details and the color of the suits that you put him in. so that And with his white hair, you know, his face, his features stand out. And you've got some great shots of his hands. Like when he points his finger. Um, when he 's meeting with omid 's character of Marcus, our hero, our former marine, who you know he 's trying to get he 's trying to get this case he wants to get his sister freed she 's been taken hostage as leverage um, and you 've got Dern sitting there barely moving and just kind of melting into the background with the color tones you have him in. And then the finger—he—he he just points that finger and moves it ever so slightly, and it's he so, is so good. It's so chilling. He, it is so chilling. It's fabulous. So,
4: I thank you. I—I—I'm—you I, know—I'm really glad that you enjoyed the film. By the way, it makes me—makes me happy at least, like that you enjoyed it and you got what I was doing, and you've been around for a while, so. Um. The uh so what the choice there, just so you know from my color pr- perspective, mm-hmm. both Bruce and Bill, when they were in their scene, opposite and I know we're talking about omid scene when they're at the bar together. Right. And that was purposeful to make it a little bit more inviting for him, although he is a daunting character. But when him and Bill are together, the reason why we lit it a little bit more cool behind him is because both of those men, their faces get red. They have a tendency to have a little bit more red in them. So like we were trying to Counteract that with a, a cool thing, so therefore they stick out, and they can you know do their thing. So one is backlit by yellow, and the other one is backlit by um, like more blue. So therefore, you get the kick because Bill gets more red than Bruce, mm-hmm. and then I want to counteract the red with yellow on Bruce's face. So therefore, you get this cool kind of mixed look, and and then with his suit and you know me, and and that's my favorite part, by the way, is, is figuring out you know. Colors, because obviously I want actors to, to be very involved in what they think they mm-hmm. they want to be in, and then we'll spitball. But, like, colors are very important to me because it's just like a character choice. But um, um, my buddy Benny, who I gave the tattoo on his head because he doesn't have a backstory. So you do that, and you put him in a bomber jacket. You get light brown with his skin tone, but mm-hmm. you get this kind of feel that he's a bad man, you know? Like, mm-hmm. you don't need to say more than that because you, you don't need that. You're already giving the audience enough with the color and the idea of what – you're doing for the character and i think it's really important well know? and it's lost it's, it's lost i feel nowadays
0: i i think for a good portion i mean i just wrapped up watching um i'm one of the jurors for judges for the santa fe film festival uh, that's in okay. santa fe come february and we just finished screening all of the submissions and there were 504 submissions um my lord This is what I've been doing for two months. People wonder why they don't get things or they don't see things. It's called time crunch. And I firmly believe that every filmmaker that submits a film to a film festival, that film has to be seen by a a judge and be considered. Um, That's amazing. There have been too many instances over the past decade or so with several film festivals where I learned that and had the evidence for it that films were being rejected and they were never watched and to me that's unconscionable yeah. when a filmmaker puts his pours his blood sweat and tears into a film to get it made submits it to a festival he deserves to have that film watched um, so that was one of my big that was one of my big focuses with these submissions for Santa Fe was that
4: wow. it, you know you if get a couple of good ones
0: There are a lot of good ones. Um, They've started announcing some of the slate. The scheduling is nowhere near done. But there are a lot of really good ones. Um, One, Scott Balderson, um, Steve Balderson, whom I adore. Steve is also a filmmaker and an author. He's got a film, Alchemy of the Spirit. Um, Steve's actually going to be on the show January 31st, uh, before the festival starts, talking about his new book about Finding your investment money for your film, uh, <laughs> and also and also talking about alchemy. But that's one that's a big one that I really love. There are a lot of shorts coming up in Santa Fe Film Festival. That uh, one is from Sweden. It's the Kick uh, Sled Choir. It is your heart will melt watching it. It is just oh man, it is enchanting. Um, but yeah, I'll be uh, you know later on as we get through the end of this year, but, you know, through January, I'd be talking more about those films. But, you know, looking at, watching those films, you're right. Color, color science is not something that a lot of people are really paying attention to. And so when you see it, you know, it's like you have, you've got your prime examples there. With the characters with Bruce and, and Robert and you know, with William Cott. Yes, folks, the greatest American hero is in this film. And he is Love And he is not much of a great American hero in this film, we'll tell you that. But what but where you go with this richness and this darkness with Bruce's character, with Robert's character? You then go almost to the opposite side of the spectrum with Jack Griffo's character of Augie, who I just love Augie. Augie is a little techie. He plays Hero Marcus's BFF. He wears a turquoise blue, baby blue unicorn onesie, and he lives in an apartment that has a lighter red wall. So you have that red coming through with twinkle lights hanging on the wall. It is glorious to see that counter, and it fits the character of Augie so perfectly. That entire design of the room, what Kevin Boylan came up with, but again, the color. The red on the wall, not as dark or as deep as what we've seen in Ray's Club or with, you know, Dern's, with our Russian mafia guy. Um, But it has whimsy to it and it really celebrates this character of Augie who seems who celebrates everything.
4: Yes. I love I love characters like that. I'm glad you noticed. Yeah, that was uh that was definitely a thing when we found that, you know, my only problem with that room it was a, it was a box. So it became difficult to to be interesting inside the room, so we had to like make it work with the color. You know, you have hard reds with like bright light blues and and Jack is such a wonderful actor. I've known him for Oh man, seven years and him and Omid. So, I think we had talked about this, but uh, last time we we I did a I stunt coordinated a show called The Thundermans. So him and the guy who plays Walsh um, played his dad mm-hmm. on the show. And um, so like when I had asked Jack, we only had so much time with him, and he was about to celebrate his birthday and all that fun stuff. So like we were trying to figure out something fun, and so we kind of crafted this thing. And then when well, we found this little this place because we were at. The location, so I had to find somewhere that would work for Augie. So when we when it was just a boring square room, I was like, let's make it, let's do the red room. Let's mm-hmm. make it red. We'll put him in something blue, and we'll have fun with it. And then we came up with the whole idea of that kind of like spurred into. Well, he's a bright color guy, so he's bright about everything. So it's like nothing really gets him down. Although he's very neurotic, he's a very bright person in his neuroticism. So I wanted the colors to reflect color like that, and mm-hmm. I and I'm glad that it came through with you.
0: So. Well and you even go a step further and this is and i thought this was so fun what kevin did is there's a door within the room and it's lower yeah. than normal height but when you open the door that's it's the bathroom the toilet's there but in one scene we see him he's in there behind the door on top of the toilet holding a laptop but it, the door is not regular height it's
4: lowered yes I I thought that was fun.
0: So it's kind of like an Alice in Wonderland kind of moment.
4: Yes. Originally, we were trying to build it out to where we could actually go inside that room, and that's like his little, like, sleep hole. Because originally what we wanted with Augie was he has this bright color, but he lives in an engine room. But we just couldn't find it, so we are trying to find, like, that that, – that kind of feel and kevin is so good at his job he's and he's a great filmmaker too
2: Mm
4: -hmm. um and he's just really wonderful and like his eye for color he's an artist like he's very complimentary and very respectful on you know bold choices and choices for the character in the story and when we found that and made that work you know like the small room it just fits character right like it just you go and you go what can fit this character in a small room you go well this is janky door, let's play with that, let's make that work, and let's make these colors work with his neuroticism, and it really plays for Jack's strength, because Jack can play these kind of kooky characters. Mm-hmm. that really, Like, we set him up, right? We set him up for for a win, and all he had to do was show up and do, do his thing, and he killed it, you know?
0: Well, and then you bring us, you know, after we've met Augie, and we fall in love with Augie, who's this brightness amongst, you know, this mafioso, you know, good cop, bad cop, you know, dichotomy that's happening here. You then give us Nick Totoro's character of Doc, another quirky, fun character. With you open things up, you he's in a, a house, he's they've got you've got windows on one whole wall, you've got light coming in. It's really one of the few times, other than with the exteriors, that anybody has any quote-unquote windows to the world, uh, yeah. per se. And that, it works so well. And there, you've got another color palette happening for the character of Doc. But there's still some red in there. This is, this is red yep. is your big tie through this whole film.
4: Yes. Different, different flavors for a different person. I'm glad you caught that. You know, burgundy is more for Ray. Uh, bright is like bright, more mag- like uh, I would say like lipstick red is more oggy. Mm-hmm. and then a little bit of magenta red that tends into dusty is like a like a like a like a dustier feel that can kind of tend to more of a magenta feels Doc. Mm-hmm. And and everybody, yeah, I mean, red was a big theme for the characters, for like me, kind of driving through like the type of passion that they have, since they all kind of live in this this gray world, you know. Mm-hmm. So there was there was tie in there, and that was a great build too. You know, originally I, I only wanted like one monitor for Doc, but you know, um, Kevin convinced me and built this wall of monitors and like built it inside the color palette that we were looking for, and we wanted to open it up for him because you know the thing with Doc right is he's this confined human that has his cage in open space, and that yeah. was the point, right? Like, he confines himself inside this crazy junkyard, which I loved shooting there, by the way. It was windy, 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 but I've shot there so many times. <laughs> um, it was really fun to to be there. And everybody, you know, like, I, got, I got to give it to, you know, when you have a happy set and people, and it's like the, the the conditions are rough, you know, and people still want to be there. I mean, God, there's nothing better than that, Debbie. I can't, I can't tell. I mean, you know. Oh, I can't yeah. tell you how great of an experience that was.
0: You know, when a happy set all it's just like a happy workplace. It's more productive. everybody's looser they're, they're bringing their a game and you know you're not riddled with tension. am I going to get this done? Am I going to get the shot? am I going to get it? So it, it really works well and I love that junkyard that you shoot in. and of course that that begs a very timely and topical question in today's world. Um, because you've got explosions happening there. You've got a shootout mm-hmm. happening there. So now what is your, because of the rust incident uh, mm-hmm. on Alec Baldwin's set, what is your, what safety protocols do you follow on a film like this? And because of the n- very nature of the films that you have been on over the course of your career, um, you know, you you do stunts. You're stunt coordinator. And there's... There's ammo, there's guns, be they prop guns, you know, so I'm curious about the, the gun, the armament situation here on Overrun, were you, you know, using prop guns, what was the story, and then you've got some really very, let's face it, they're very cool explosions, but I'm suspecting, I'm suspecting that they were probably CGI, or if they were practical, they were then built up in CGI to be bigger.
4: They were. They were practical explosions. So when it comes to so I can only speak for how I run a set mm-hmm. as some coordinator or when I'm doing something um, with safety, that kind of makes sense to me. So, you know, I've been working with Frank Siglia, who is the special effects coordinator, and I've been working with him since prison break. We've been friends back since like 2006, 2007. And, um, you know, everybody in our business. You know, they know, they pretty much know, they know Frank. So it's like, it's easy going, Hey, I want to blow this house up. Who's your special effects guy? Frank. So already you're taking a step in the right direction by hiring the professionals that you need, regardless of what it's going to cost. And then you just have to, as the producer or as a person who's looking up their safety, make sure that we just allot the time. And when you're doing low budget movies or you're doing a small movie with Frank, you know, I try to put his stuff in a block and give him the time and only do what I know we can do safely and correctly. And the same with my armorer, Clay Van Sickle, who's been in the business for a very long time. I actually met Clay, well, geez, I met Clay in 2000.
2: Mm-hmm. And we've
4: been friends and he became an armorer, I think, a little shortly after that. And um, it's kind of second nature. So when I hear about actions like that, they don't make sense to me. Because the way that my guys, the way that I would run a set, you know, because stunt coordinator, that's my job, safety, yep. the EDs, safety. It's like no one what we did on Overham was we had a lot of live fire, for sure. Um, but no one touches the guns other than Clay and then then the AD, and there's, like, a whole chain of command, and we have a whole powwow um, to make sure everybody knows what's going on. And and, and our set – because, again, we made, we made our movie in 15 days,
2: mm-hmm. and we
4: still had a bunch of gunfire, a bunch of fighting, and we were still able to make the time – for these safety meetings because I think of what I've done and, and what I do. And most of my guys on my set, we're all in that, that community so that we know the protocol. But it's like you give the time and the effort to those two humans and then the FSA, if you're doing explosions and make sure that they get the time that they want to talk and not making people feel stupid for wanting to ask questions because everybody's like, well, it's not my job. Well, I don't give, I don't care. You know, if you have a question, ask us no stupid questions, especially mm-hmm. if there's a gun being pointed at you, yeah. you know, like, you know, if you, if you feel uncomfortable, then we'll work at it. I, I you know, I've worked with actors who are very uncomfortable and it's supposed to be a very intense scenes, so we have to, like, make sure everybody can be on the same page and that they're comfortable with the guns. So, like, we'll meet up, we'll look at prop guns, we'll talk the conversation, we'll rehearse with dummy guns, and if they're still uncomfortable, we'll do it with um, CO2 guns, because you can't add a lot and post, and there's things called zero guns now, Debbie, where oh. there's no fire out the front, but it does everything that you would need other than having the flash, so you can put the muzzle flash in flashing if you need to. So it's like there's no... I do like the practical feel of what live fire looks like and feels like, and for actors, it really makes them feel... Um, it really brings the scene together, but that being said, safety is paramount, always paramount. I mean, as a stunt coordinator, um, that's your job. Like, that's, my your key job is make sure someone... When you're doing a crazy gag, there's so much pressure because people. Some sometimes people think that you can just show up and like, oh, they're the stunt guys. We, they can just do their thing. No, there's still a lot of calculation to make <laughs> sure a lot. that you're covering your bases. So, well, and, um, when you're doing when you're doing that, it's very important. You know, very important. So that accident, you know, because I had talked to Clay about it, um, and I had talked to um, a couple other people about what their thoughts were. And it's tragic. You know, it's tragic. I feel. You know, I wasn't there, so I can't really talk about yeah. what that actually was. But I know that that is not that is not standard practice. You know, it's happened four times in um, in the business. You know, last time in '94 with Brendan Lee, but like it's it was fairly egregious and you know mismanaged for sure. And I don't understand. I just don't understand how that works because you know we when the movie in Arkansas, it was a rough and tumble film, and it was. It was a tough one, but we had a lot of live fire in that as well.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: So I think that, um, and we still were able to be safe and have the right meetings. And that one was even tighter than overrun, you know? So it's like, it's, as long as you give yourself the time and you just stand up and go, no, we're going to take the time. You want this gag. This is what this is going to take. You can give me, you can give me 30 minutes to make sure everything is set. Cause if you want the good stuff, then you have to just stand up and go, no, this is what this is. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to, you know, this is people's lives at stake. I know we're in pretend land, but there's still calculated risk.
0: Absolutely, and
4: it's really, really important. So,
0: well, I think you know, and just to let all the listeners know, everybody know, live fire does not mean live am- does not mean live ammunition. No,
4: no, no. <laughs> it does no, not, not mean them.
0: bullets are going in these guns.
4: No, and there is a clear difference. By the way, I'm just going to let you know that there's a clear difference between fake and real bullets. Um, and, yes, live fire. What I mean, live fire, I mean going going hot and all that fun stuff. Definitely not live bullets. I'm not going I'm not, to – I'm not doing that crazy stuff. No.
0: So. No, I – you know. Always it, safe. You know, and it's funny because um, I spoke with Sean Piccinino and cinematographer Brad Rushing um, because they have worked on so many things together. And the two of them have come up with a way to simulate muzzle fire. So that then in post, it's more coordinated with the actions of a prop gun. Uh, and Brad uses these tiny little LED lights and kind of under... It's great. And either puts it underneath or behind to get the right light so that when you're pulling a trigger or cocking a gun or something, um, you can match it up and plug in the the big muzzle fire in, in post in CG.
4: Yeah, it's great. It's that's great. That's such a great idea using like little pop lights. Yeah, for like the flash.
0: And yeah, we really got into that in a discussion. That's actually a piece that uh, is going to be out, I think, around the first of the year in print with the pen name. Okay. Um, but it'll be online too. But we're really big at the pen name that we're a print newspaper. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Because print, it in there, Debbie. Get it in there. Print
0: is not dead. Okay,
4: It is not. I agree with you.
0: My reviews are still carried in many print publications down south on the East Coast. There's are smaller papers, but there are people that love print. And you get a lot of people of a certain age bracket, they don't have computers. They don't want to use computers. They don't want to look online for something. They want to pick it up read it, and then crumple up that paper and use it in their fireplace.
4: I mean, you're not wrong. It's still, like, I love print. There's something so, you know, like, you're there reading it. It's in your hands. Yeah. It's cool to read it digitally, but, like, I love reading a good book or, you know, a good script in my hands or a good newspaper or, you know, like, that's where I used to find, you know, what movies and reviews and all this fun stuff, and, like, it was all very exciting because, like, you're you're there, like, every week or every day with this person that's mm-hmm. writing and it feels like they're writing for you, you know? Yeah. And that's amazing. You can't really get that. It's personal.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, back to Overrun here for a minute. I'm really, I'm very curious how you manage to amass a cast like this and snare William Cott, Bruce Stern, Robert Miano, Nick Turturro, and bring in supporting people like Johnny Mesmer, Mesner, Chris Talman, who is Detective James Walsh. He's he's always hungry. He's always eating, and the donut scene is great, by the way. Um, I
4: love him. So thank you for that. You know, I'm so glad someone enjoyed it.
0: Oh my God, the donut scene is hilarious. Um, but he he's always hungry. So funny. He's got. He has to go to one diner because he likes that diner, and he's hungry, and he's got to go get donuts. And do I really have to go in there now? I'm getting my donut. And to walk in holding your donut when your superior is calling you in. And you're standing there just holding your donut. Uh, you couldn't leave it on your desk. You had to, to bring it. God forbid somebody might yeah. might take it.
4: It's so funny. so funny, by the way. He's so funny. That guy is, I mean, I've, I worked with Chris for seven years. I Or six years. I love him dearly wonderful comedian, wonderful actor, constant professional. He's so good. Oh. Um, so to, to your question.
2: Yes. Um,
4: so Bruce Dern was, uh, Bruce Dern was like our, our get, Right. And we got Bruce through the guy who played Walt, Walt Pachinko. One of the, like the, he's uh, Kevin Makeley and okay. he played, um, one of the brothers. He played Walt and, and Michael played Rudy and, uh, he was originally supposed to play Finning, but like he was working, he I think at that point he just got cast as Macho Man in Young Rock, and or no, I think this was before then, but he was working on something, doing his thing. Anyway, he got us Bruce. Him and Omed had worked on a Western, his Western called Badland, and they became friends. And then it's like, hey, does you he want to be in our movie? I, I really like this guy, and he's great. He's a good actor. And I was like, yeah, sure, let's let's see what this, and then we had the conversation, and he brought Bruce in, because he, his movie that he starred in, Bruce was in his film, and he said, I think he'd be great, and so we kind of went down that road, and we're able to secure Bruce through Kevin.
2: Oh, wow. William,
4: it's like, William's like my dad. Like, I can, <laughs> like, I talk to Will Phil every week, you know, we have lunch, and we, you know, we do all that fun stuff. He is, you know, he's the greatest American hero, I grew up on that, and he's a wonderful person we met on a bad movie in 2007 and very bad movie. And uh, <laughs> like I was getting eaten by a dude in underwear that was supposed to be an alien. We're shooting. It was just awful. And, you know, Bill, we, we make jokes about it, but we became lifelong friends, you know, after that. And I actually played in one of his bands. He had a band a long time mm-hmm. ago. He's a great singer, good songwriter, but like, that's how we got William because like me and him got really close. And William is really close with Nick Totoro. And you know, and Bill said, "Hey, why don't you call Nick? I think he'd be great for the doc role." And so I called Nick because of William. And obviously, Jack and Chris, I worked the uh, the kids show with them, Thundermans, mm-hmm. and um, I was able to get both of them because of that. Um, Robert, who I think is such an underrated actor, he's been in what, yeah. 300 movies. Oh my he God, is yeah, so incredibly gifted. You know, he's Sonny Red and Donnie Brasco. But look, he had that stare. His story, how we got that movie, is amazing. How we got Donnie Brasco is so good. I'll have, when we have a longer chat, I'll have to tell you. It's, it's, he's so great. You know, hey, Josh, uh, You know, well, what are we doing, huh? Huh? <laughs> hey, man, don't kill me, Rob. So I've known him. He was one of the first people I met out in Los Angeles. And uh, we just became fast friends. He took me under his wing. That's kind of like a, you know, aspiring filmmaker. And he's very kind to filmmakers. And so, and he's a really good actor. He just likes acting. I think he saw me and said, like, oh, you want to be a filmmaker? Let me act in something because I love acting and I like you. So, like, I've just known him for a very long while and was able to, to get him along. You know, and Johnny, I worked with him in 2011 on a movie called Arena. Mm-hmm. We became fast friends because he's like a back east guy. Yep. guy. You know, we kind of like got on, on that, you know. And, you know, he's now happily married. He has kids and... He's, uh, he's doing his thing, but I had met him on an action film, and we kind of kept up with each other. And, you know, I've just been his friend for a while, and he's really doing um, doing great for himself at the moment, so I'm really happy for him. But that's kind of like how yeah, – I've just kind of known these people or, like, through people that were yeah. on the movie to, to amass this cast, um, which, to me, I, I really think I got lucky, you know, because even the supporting cast of, of um, you know, Haley was through um, – uh, the writer, Roberto, mm-hmm. and um, and it was all kind of like a little tight-knit group that wants to help each other out. And, wow. you know, thankfully everybody liked the script enough and everybody got what we were trying to do um, with it. Because, you know, you could read it and think that, A, it's your typical stuff. But if you get what we're trying to accomplish with this particular type of film, you know, because it was for Omid, you know. And mm-hmm. Omid and I have been friends for a really long time. We own Turbo Panda together. And, um, you know, he really wanted to just to take his shot and, you know, I'm glad that we got this out here and, and, uh, you know, he really did a great job as well. And I wanted him to feel comfortable. So getting a cast that would make him feel comfortable. And again, Debbie, that's why, you know, because Bill always says, well, you can cast somebody else, William. He's always like, you can cast somebody else. You can, you can just like, Bill, you're going to be in a damn movie. Yeah, You're going to do it. (laughs) And he goes, okay. Um, but the reason why I, I like having him around is because other actors know who he is, and they respect him. It makes me comfortable as a director. Sure, because you know, I, when I put him opposite of Bruce, it was really nice. It was really nice for me to kind of be. I could immediately get in the zone and feel comfortable with Bruce because I have another vet there who's right. been doing it as long.
2: Mm-hmm. And
4: it was really, um, it was really nice. That was. But uh, listen, I could talk to you forever. So I'm trying not to get off topic because I did earlier. You just kind of wrapped me back around to overrun. But I'm like, I just let's talk about flowers. What's up?
0: What's <laughs> well, unfortunately, we are actually out of time.
4: Of course we are.
0: And I have to let you go. We have to go to the bar and just sit and talk sometime.
4: Yes. Yes. I really do want to do that. And uh, um, so I'm done on that movie finally like I have I do have time but I would really like to catch up and thank you so much I would and I told Annie this I absolutely enjoy talking to you about film and all that fun stuff and thank you so much for having me on the show I can't thank oh, you enough
0: I love having you on I love having you on so we will chat soon everybody can pick up overrun now great stocking stuffer yep. it's in all the stores you can get it on Amazon I know I looked and by the way, I rewatched the film last night on my brand new 50 inch TV and it looks
2: damn
4: oh. good.
0: Damn good. That was my Christmas present <laughs> to me. So um. <laughs> you're too kind. You're and too y- kind. yours was you know, be- before
4: the... you let me go. Yes. Um, I read your article on our last interview and I hadn't read it yet. And I, I thought it was so fun. You're so nice. You're, just, just a, you're so great. So um, it's it... thank you.
0: Well, you're very welcome. Thank you. And until until next time, my friend, stay yes, out of, stay out of I'll trouble.
4: Do I'll do my best. You too. I think you're the troublemaker. Thank yeah, so much. Tuffy.
0: We know that. Thanks, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> bye, bye. Thank you. Talk to you. Bye. And that was another fun-filled conversation with Josh Tessier talking overrun. Now, as promised, we're gonna we're gonna get into some serious serious stuff here. The the film Mass written and directed by Fran Kranz it is a striking story. It is compelling. It is riveting. And the premise is there is an unspeakable tragedy that tore two sets of parents apart. Uh, the parents are played by Reed Burney and Ann Dowd and then Jason Isaacs and Martha Plimpton. And they have now... the these two couples have agreed to meet uh, with each other to talk through the tragedy that has occurred affecting both of their families. Um, And it has been negotiated by a third-party broker because it is just such a tense and chilling situation that they face. Um, Fran, what he does here, he examines grief, the journey of grief, anger, acceptance and does it with such skill, such thoughtfulness um, and making the most of silence, um, camera movement and powerful performances. So we did this interview just before the premiere of mass in October. I've been sitting on it waiting now that he has nominations from HCA Here we go. Fran Kranz talking mass. Hey, how are you? I'm fine, Fran. How are you doing? It's been a while. The last time we got to chat, last time we got to chat was Midsummer Night's Dream premiere at the Newark. Oh,
5: my gosh. Cool. Oh, my gosh. Of course. Yeah. Casey just texted me. He's not able to come tonight so that we have a premiere tonight. Um, and you just send me a sweet text? Oh, my God, yes.
0: That was the last... Le-
5: we'll we have to catch up more. I know I have a, you know, crazy day, and these are always too short, so I, I hope we can.
0: I, I sure hope so. Do
5: it. Yeah, let's find something. I You know, I didn't even put it together. I don't know who I'm talking to. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but that's why I'm here to remind you. I have to tell you, my friend, I am so excited That you finally did it. You stepped into the director's chair, wrote this script. This is outstanding. Outstanding, Fran. From beginning to end, you build tension. Your stylization with the cinematography and the sound design. You can hear a pin drop. You celebrate awkward silences with a situation like this. And you cast so impeccably. This is, watching these actors, this is a master class in acting and also in the subtlety and nuance of powerful filmmaking. You have really done an incredible job, Fran.
5: Thank you. Thank you so much. That means a lot, Debbie.
0: Uh, I mean, where do you even begin... With something like this, because this goes beyond rumination on grief and the grieving process. Because you bring in, through conversation of these four parents, you bring in issues of politics and gun control, um, of grief, of sorrow, of anger. This is not easy to even get on the page before it gets into the hands of the actors. Where do you start?
5: I yeah no thank you you know I mean I thank you those really beautiful words I mean I, honestly Debbie I'm touched I, I it means a lot to me I I think it you know now that you mention it I I, I think it's I think it started with as far as the writing and finding this it, knowing and deciding that these were four good people and that I wasn't condemning the parents of the shooter, that I wasn't going to do that, that knowing, no, I I believe these four people are good, there's not a good or bad guy, there's not an antagonist or protagonist, this is a tragic situation, but I am going to hold true to their humanity and their dignity, and it made for a really difficult writing process, because I basically improvised these four actors, four characters in the situation, and so I was constantly arguing with myself for running into dead ends because I didn't know how to continue the conversation if I sort of reached a, a stalemate or some gridlock between these four characters and what they wanted and what they were trying to say but couldn't um, it, it, it was difficult, it was challenging but but I think it, it, it meant for a more meaningful script and a more layered script because they they were real people mm-hmm. in my mind, and I, and I wanted to defend them and I wanted to to, to, to honor them and that the courage that it took to get into a room and sit across a table from someone you feel blamed towards or hate for or someone you feel incredibly guilty uh towards or shame in front of and work through those feelings to kind of reach some kind of reconciliation i, I can't think of anything more important or incredible that like a that a human being could do i, I mean truly mm-hmm. and today's world, where this country feels so divided, these things keep happening, and it's terrifying, and it's infuriating, and inexcusable, and and what can we do, what can we do, and I, I worry we don't see our leaders making progress like this, and, and working with each other, and so I just, I came across these meetings and doing research, and I thought this is the this, this feels like the most important story I could possibly tell. And I, have been, I was writing another screenplay and had ideas for something else entirely. And then this took complete control over my life.
0: And Well, I'm glad it did. Because <laughs> this is its such an amazing film. And the way you approach this, um, every character, the traits of each one of these individuals are so resonant. No, there is nobody who will see this film that will not be touched by these characters and find connection uh, with them and I find that truly amazing, but I'm really curious, because this is a conversational piece, it is a dialogue, how beneficial was it for you to be an actor in crafting this? I, I, I you
5: know, I mean, I, it's hard to ever, you know, measure or calculate that, but I, I wanted my actors to tell me what was wrong with the script. <laughs> I wanted them to tell me what they needed. And, and maybe that came from being an actor myself, loving actors, believing in the importance of acting and their instincts and what they bring to the table to a production, whether it's film or television or stage, actors bring these things to life and they take the emotional journey and so if they are having trouble if they phone something in if they find something false that they have to fake we should change the the production we should change the script we should change we, we need to make it work to some degree for them to carry them through the emotional journey that, that the story is, is putting them on
2: mm-hmm.
5: and so when we got into a rehearsal I, I gave them a lot of freedom and wanted them, encouraged them to become co-authors because I I believe. Look, actors, great actors have great instincts. I have four of the great actors alive; they're as yeah. good as it gets. And I wanted to listen to them. I wanted to hear where things bumped for them or where things seemed to be missing a beat. You know, and so I we had a two and a half day rehearsal, but it was it was kind of like a two and a half day writing workshop.
2: Mm-hmm. It was
5: table. It was table work, and we ch- and we changed the script and added little things here and there and tweak things in order to carry them on the emotional journey. Because I, 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 we only had you know fourteen days to shoot it, eight days to shoot the conversation, and uh, you know we didn't have time to sit around and talk about how how you cry and how you get to these places and how you feel grief. You know, the, first of all, they're great actors; they know how to do that, mm-hmm. but. Well, we needed to make sure that the, the, the journey was there. That mm-hmm.
0: it, that. Well, another great journey that you take us on is from a visual standpoint, what you and your DP, what you and Ryan do, I love that for two-thirds of the film, you keep the camera. When one person is talking, the camera's on that one person. Maybe a reaction peripherally on the side from someone else, but you keep a, that You keep that divisiveness going until we get to Jason's incredible scene describing his son and his death and then you open up the camera you shift you know you take us in wide and slowly we start seeing eyes are wide open and the coming together this is such a deliberate visual construction, constructive design what led you to this Fran
5: yeah, well, I, I wanted to find a perspective shift because I think when 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 we lose people close to us, when we lose loved ones, when something devastating happens in our lives, when tragedy happens, it changes the way we see the world. As simple as that. And And in many ways, and I think in a lot of instances, you never really see it the same way again. You know, grief changes you. Tragedy changes you. And I wanted to... I wanted to uh, I wanted to show that in the aesthetic of the film with the camera. So we shift, we, we change lenses, which you're keen to pick up on. We go from spherical to anamorphic lenses at a key moment in the movie mm-hmm. to to sort of illustrate how how loss changes the way you see the world and, and forever it changes your perspective. Uh, but but leading up to it, there's I I'd like to think very subtle camera work and a very simple mm-hmm. evolution that that mirrors the emotional journey of the film, the, the emotional uh, arc of the, the characters are taking. That the movie begins somewhat stable and stable two shots, like you said, kind of hovering around the table but never getting too close as the characters are kind of feeling one another out. And slowly we introduce movements as they start to make progress in their search for meaning. Then the movements are more distinct, like direct camera pans. And eventually, as things start to deteriorate, we go into a handheld camera. So mm-hmm. Brian and I, I, I spent, spent so much time together talking about how both, you know, a movie like My Dinner with Andre works. You know, we don't have to do a lot. There's just a few setups. Let's not overthink this. And let's never be visible as a director or cinematographer. Let's just put the camera where we think it needs to be. But also, we we, we did want to take an emotional journey with the camera. We, you know, we wanted to rely on... You know, not doing too much, but also we have to we have to feel what they feel, and so the camera, the camera, the camera tries to go there, and, and I think it's, I think we're successful, and Ryan did incredible, incredible work.
0: You are definitely successful with the camera. One last question for you, Fran. Then has to be about sound. Yeah. It is not often that a director is is willing to go that extra mile and have no score but really the sound it makes you listen even more intently to the words that are being spoken so I'm curious your thought your thought process on that of going with no score yeah
5: well I, I always I always believe from the beginning you know it's before I probably even had a finished draft, I remember thinking, "I want to make a movie where the only music is practical." Mm-hmm. And the piano at the beginning, the piano lesson at the beginning, and the choir at the end. Right. And I, I, that was as that was from the very beginning. I mean, it was basically one of my first ideas in conceiving the story and how you could tell it. We did pay a lot of attention to the subtlety, though, of sound design. I had a friend of mine, Kevin Steven, created. These, these very subtle atmospheric sounds that I, I kept bringing up this reference to a Chekhov cherry orchard. He has a mm, string, yes. out of string breaking off in the distance and it's like the sound of the world aching or dying and I wanted to put that in the atmosphere that it didn't feel like score it almost felt like maybe there's construction going on far off in the distance but what it is is it's is, is, is meant to sort of reflect the internal world of these characters, the aching the, the sort of endless aching and of the war with grief that goes on inside of us in the sense of sort of a world moaning or a world aching, that it's off in the atmosphere, it's off in the mountains, you can hear it off in the distance, but easily could mistake it for something else. So there was some of that, and then Alex Verbinski, my sound editor and re-recording mixer, he, he, he's a bit of a genius, <laughs> even though I drove him crazy, wanting to come back and do more. but so we spent... I mean, we spent hours just taking room tone out at key moments so that you're truly left in silence. Uh, we added dog barks so you're reminded that this is happening in the real world. Mm-hmm. This sort of extraordinary quality of the conversation is contrasted with the ordinary quality of the room and the neighborhood and life outside. So there was there were so many tiny, subtle things that were actually, you know, painstaking work right it it was it was really a lot of work that went into just finding those moments of silence where the room tone almost disappears where it comes back up so you almost feel the air conditioning and feel the sort of the the intrusiveness of the space you know there was um there was just i mean i I could go on forever if you gave me a little bit of money i would go back and play with that
0: (laughs) i i love i just love the soundscape fran
5: no, yeah, good. I'm glad you do. I do too, but I still play with it. I would. I would just go
0: back. <laughs> well, I know that now they want to take me what take you away from me. Thank you so much, Fran, and yes, we will chat more later.
5: Okay, thanks, Debbie.
0: I'll talk to you soon. Bye bye. And that was Fran Kranz, And pardon the audio on that, but the this was the vacillating of the phone connection that they had us hooked up on. Um it wasn't a direct line between Fran and I. So there were multiple other phones connected in between. Um, so, but you can read and, and hear more about Fran Kranz talking about mass on behind the lens Dot net. Uh, We've got more stuff coming that I'm going to be popping out uh, on the site this week. A lot more interviews. Some really great uh, awards consideration kind of interviews. Uh, Quite a few cinematographers and a few more. So that is all the time we have today and then some. Uh, We'll be back next week. We've got more guests lined up the next two weeks before we take our end of year break. But until next week... I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.